In every episode, our guests are going to share their mantra with you to set the tone for the rest of the show. This isn't something I planned on doing when I set out to be a podcast host, but it's something that organically happened when I started recording these episodes. At the end of the show, I'm going to invite you to tell me what you think of opening a show with a mantra. In the meantime, I can't wait to introduce you to my friend, Dr. Dan Diamond. I wanted this to be my very first interview because speaking with Dr. Diamond was like a walk down memory lane for me because we both have a connection to healthcare and Seattle, Washington. Dr. Diamond's mantra is repeated over and over again throughout the episode, but I also want to share it with you right here. It's not about me. I don't care who gets credit, and I have the power to make a difference. I'm going to say it one more time. It's not about me. I don't care who gets credit, and I have the power to make a difference. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. And in every episode, our guests are going to share a book that has made an impact on the way they do things. In this episode, Dr. Dan Diamond recommends Conversations Worth Having by Jackie Stavros and Sherry Torres. I'm actually listening to it right now, and I'd recommend it to anyone who wants to create positive change in the world. Dr. Diamond will explain why in greater detail during the episode, but if you want to read the book for free with a 30-day trial membership to Audible, just go to audibletrial.com slash handle everything and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download the title for free and start listening right away. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash handle everything. Welcome to the Handle Everything podcast, where people who have a lot on their plate come to learn how to open doors to opportunities by handling it all in a healthy way. I'm your host, Tara Bradford, a former ICU nurse turned executive coach based in New York City. I'm here with Dr. Dan Diamond. He is passionate about equipping people to thrive, especially when resources are scarce or times are tough. He was the director of the medical triage unit at the New Orleans Convention Center following Hurricane Katrina, led one of the first medical teams into Haiti following their devastating earthquake and deployed to the Philippines following Typhoon Yolanda. He has been seen on CNN, Anderson Cooper, and Larry King Live. Welcome to the show, Dr. Diamond. Thanks, Tara. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to spend some time with you and kick around some ideas. I am so excited too. So I want to start by asking you the question that I ask everyone on the show. What I want to know is how full is your plate? Give us a peek into your day-to-day life and all the responsibilities you're juggling. That's a brutal question. You know, (laughs) Um, my plate is incredibly full. Um, I've got a lot of stuff going on right now. Um, I'm working on my second book and speaking and podcasting and blogging and traveling and uh, just went and got trained in a a new method for running big workshops uh, for hundreds of people. I mean, I'm having so much fun. I really enjoy my work a lot. 
Um, but yeah, my plate's full I, and I have a big plate. That's great. You have to have a big plate if you're going to make the kind of difference in the world that you are making. And also, I know we talked before we started this podcast recording and Dan, Dr. Diamond, Dan, is it okay if I call you Dan? Dan and I have a connection to Seattle, Washington. I used to be a trauma critical care nurse at Harborview Medical Center and Dan's wife used to work there too. Yeah, true story. So you also have a family. (laughs) Yeah, I do. I have a wife that's a retired trauma nurse. And you guys are different, by the way. You know that? You see the world differently. You're, it's like hanging out with trauma nurses is a dangerous thing. <laughs> um, I've got a wife and three children. I've got two sons and a daughter and one grandbaby. Oh, congratulations. Oh, thanks. And so I'm curious, with all of these things on your plate, both professionally and personally, how do you handle everything? You know, what I have found is that the internal conversation that I have with myself is crucial. So in, in, in my book, um, Beyond Resilience, Trench-Tested Tools to Thrive Under Pressure, I, I talk about four different types of mindset. Uh, there's the powerless takers that are the victims, the powerful takers that are the controllers, the powerless givers that are the bystanders saying, oh my gosh, somebody should do something. And then there's the thrivers that are the powerful givers. It's a simple model, but it really helps me figure out what's going on. There's not four different types of people. There's four different mindsets. So if I wake up in the morning and I go, oh, my life sucks. This is terrible. Then my internal dialogue is not as good. And it becomes, um, if I get down and my internal conversation is negative i don't see as many opportunities it's like getting tunnel vision it's like when <laughs> it's like when i was in haiti so i was there after the earthquake and i i was just talking with my buddy bob uh, that was that went uh, deployed with me to haiti i was talking to him last night about this we were laughing that you know we were there for about 5 days we'd been tra- we had traveled all over the the city and had seen all this tremendous destruction. And we were, uh, our safe house, and I use the word safe lightly, uh, was a concrete building. We were sleeping on the second floor. It was about 6.30 in the morning. And um, I felt the bed start to shake. And I'm kind of dreaming. I'm in Never Neverland going, oh, my mom's trying to wake me up. I thought I was a little kid again. <laughs> and then I realized it was an earthquake. Well, you know, I yelled, earthquake, Bob yells, earthquake. And we jump out of bed and I was sleeping in my tidy whiteies. Don't try to picture that. Um, <laughs> but I had taken my, my boots and my pants and put them right by the head of my bed, just like a firefighter in case there was an earthquake. So I could jump out, put my feet in my shoes, pull my pants up and run out. But I jumped out of bed and I couldn't see my pants. I looked and I was like, they were not there. And I thought, well, would you rather be dead or embarrassed? And I thought, oh, I'd rather be embarrassed. So I ran downstairs ran out into the courtyard with my whole team and all the people from our little community that we were working in. I'm the only guy in tidy whiteies. Everybody else has clothes on. And they're all looking around and then they start laughing. And then this girl, like 10 year old girl passes out. And then, and my team is ruthless. They say, diamond, she passed out because she saw you in your tidy whiteies. The black boxer briefs, because it's better in case you're in an earthquake. 
and there, and this is worth knowing, you know, like don't use tidy whities they're, they're, It's not okay. But the point is when you're in a high stress situation, you get tunnel vision, tunnel thinking and tunnel hearing. And it's, it, you know, it, it is, it is so powerful. There's no, after the earthquake was over, I went back upstairs and you know where my pants were. They were right where I put them, right at the head of my bed. But I promise you, I could not see them. I was so scared. And so if I, if I have these negative conversations going on internally and, um, or anger or frustration, my vision becomes narrower and narrower. And we know this by research that was done by Barbara Fredericks, and she had this theory called broaden and build, that when you're in a happy mood and when you're celebrating, you're practicing gratitude, it's like you get a wide angle lens on your prefrontal cortex. That's the part of your brain right behind your forehead where you do all your creative thinking, all your executive functioning. You stick a wide angle lens on that thing, you can actually come up with some solutions and fix things and make things better. But uh, when I get negative, it becomes really difficult. I can totally relate to that. Not the tidy whities but the tunnel vision from my days working in trauma when someone's heart rate and blood pressure drops all of a sudden drastically, your knees kind of buckle and it knocks the wind out of you. And then you have to either do something or call for help. You have to respond right away. You don't have time to freeze in place. And so in situations like that, or even not in stressful situations like natural disasters, do you ever feel overwhelmed or stressed? Or would you associate that with more of a negative mindset? Well, I mean, if, if I'm in a, in a high stress situation and I keep my thrivers mindset of I have the power to make a difference, it's not about me and I don't care who gets the credit. I've got a good internal conversation going on. Then I start seeing with a little bit, with a broader lens. I start asking better questions. I discover better options. I make better choices and I have better fruit on my tree. That's fantastic. So now after practicing, practicing this over and over again, do you feel that it's kind of just natural that you switch over into this thriver mindset and it takes over? Absolutely not. I wish it was natural. It would be so cool. It'd be so much easier. <laughs> oh, my my natural tendency is to slide back into this sucks. I have to be very vigilant. And you know, when I'm doing keynote presentations and workshops around the country and I and we are talking about this, we talk about this internal conversation and some people in the audience have this blank look and I, and I say, you know, if, if you're one of those people that just said to yourself, well, I don't have an internal conversation, that's the voice I'm talking about. And it's not something that we are, I, I mean, it's easy to become unaware of it because it's always there. It's like my son has a Neapolitan Mastiff. It's a big, huge dog, and it smells like a wet goat. But he doesn't think it stinks because he's so used to the smell. Um, and everybody else in the world goes, dang, you got a stinky dog, man. Um, and with our internal conversation, the, the first most important step in really getting work done in high-pressure situations is to realize that we have a conversation going and to tune into it. And when it goes negative, to bump it. 
and say, wait a minute, this sounds, this conversation sounds like the victim's mindset because I'm powerless and it's all about me and nobody's taking care of me. Um, and when I, when I realize that's going on, I go, oh, wait a minute now. I really do have choice here. I really do have power. It's not about me and I don't care who gets the credit. So let's face the other direction and change the conversation. And then my brain goes, oh, oh okay, we can do that. But it's not natural. Not at all. I wish it was natural. Uh, it takes work. Yeah, I agree. And I love that first step you mentioned about having to recognize and acknowledge that victim mindset is happening. And that's when you can intervene. Yeah, until you're aware of it, you're toast. You're, right. you're just you're at the mercy of whatever conversation your brain wants to have. So tell us a little bit about how this thriver mindset has worked in your life when you were under a lot of pressure and it was you were able to use that or leverage it to turn things around and turn it into an opportunity. Well, I mean, I've, I've done crazy stuff all over the world. And when I was in New Orleans running the medical triage unit at the convention center, uh, we had plenty of opportunities of, you know, to make sure that we're looking in the right direction, um, to back up a little bit, keep a bigger picture, try to understand um, that it's not about us. I don't want to show up in a disaster and go, nobody's meeting my needs. <laughs> That's kind of right. ridiculous. <laughs> I want to show up and say, I got something to contribute here and I don't care who gets the credit. Uh, so if you don't show up with that, and I've worked with other medical organizations, I deploy with a, an organization called Medical Teams International. And one of the reasons I like being part of that team is they don't care who gets the credit. But I've worked alongside other organizations that were all about who gets the credit. They would show up and say, we're here now. You guys can go home. No, you can't borrow any of our stuff. And no, we don't want your help. Wow. That's just not, you know, if we, if we show up and say, I have the power to make a difference. It's not about me. And I don't care who gets the credit. I'm saying that over and over again because I'm hoping it'll stick. Um, then I can really get some work done. Um, in, in July, I had a coronary calcium screening test done. <laughs> because my primary care guy says, hey, you should go and get this done, Diamond. Because if your score is zero, you're great. If your score is above 400, you're in trouble. Well, my score was over 2,100. So they did a bunch more workup. I, I hold the record in the clinic. It's not a record I want, but that's the highest one anyone's ever seen. I ended up getting a quadruple bypass in July. So I had, it was like a big lab experiment for my internal conversation. Um, I had plenty of time when I was sitting around <laughs> trying to recover. And that's a painful surgery. It um, is really in, painful. In that recovery phase, I found that when I, focused on the pain and got discouraged and had a negative conversation going on, it hurt more. Um, and when I focused on where I wanted to go, I was more likely to get there. Uh, and it didn't weigh as much. So years ago, I used to think this whole mindfulness meditation stuff was just a bunch of woo-woo. Now I know it's not. It's, um, it's a way for me to keep my, uh, to have some choice and to keep my brain focused in the direction that I want it to go. I really love what you said there about when you focused on it hurting, it hurt more. Because being on the other side of that as a nurse, I remember telling people, don't hold your breath. It's going to hurt more if you hold your breath. And just yeah. watching people's bodies react 
your body stiffens, your muscles tighten, that makes it hurt worse. And so when you have those thoughts and those beliefs, your body is responding to those thoughts by taking the action that makes it hurt more. Mm -hmm. For sure. It's very interesting. And I've proven it to myself. I don't have any doubt anymore. In the worst way. Ever. Right. I would not wish that on anybody. And I'm glad you're doing okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was it was quite the journey. I'm working on a new book right now that that I'd just like to run by and see what you think. It's a book called Friend. Discover the joy of deeper connection. Because the sense that I have is that people are lonely. I mean, we know that this is like the loneliest time ever. Right. Um, over 50% of people in the United States now think uh, or describe themselves as being lonely. And uh, young and people too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And interestingly, you know, Cigna did this study in 2018. Uh, and they said that the 18 to 22 year olds were the loneliest generation alive, more lonely than the isolated elderly. And I'm thinking, well, I know why it's the cell phones. And then the next paragraph was, and it's not the cell phones. I went, what? Mm. Now, the conclusion that they had was that people are too busy doing and not doing enough being. And I believe and, that. And that. Yeah. And it's in, you know, when, when you come back to mindset, you come back to internal conversation. If we're just going, 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 going all the time and we don't stop to say, what's my internal conversation going on? What's my mindset right now? How am I showing up? Am I fully present here to be with these people or with the person that I'm with? Um, if I'm not doing that, then, then I'm missing out. Now, it was, um, I don't know if you saw Tom Hanks movie about Mr. Rogers. Did you see that? I didn't see it. It's on my list. It's so good. And he's talking to this reporter. And I mean, Tom Hanks is one of the best actors of all time. And he, and he says um, to the reporter, you know, do you know where I would rather be than talking on the phone with you? And, and the reporter goes, no, what do I mean? What do you got going on? He goes, nowhere. You're the most important thing in my life right now. Thought, wow, can I show up ready to be nowhere else? Right. That's a powerful statement. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How often does that happen where we, where we show up? And you know, when I'm looking at disasters and I'm looking at difficult situations, um, the people that do the best are the ones that are present. Their brains are not spinning off into a, into a cycle of fear and anxiety and anger, but they're same present uh, and looking at what they can do to connect to other people and how they can help. There were a lot of people, by the way, that did that. And the news media didn't show that. Um, it, I would say Hurricane Katrina, of all the disasters that I've done, had the most profound impact on my thinking because I knew we were going to have a lot of victims. We had 50,000 body bags. The media didn't tell you that either, but we wow. knew it was going to be bad. But I was not prepared for um, these people that did not become victims. They'd, they'd lost everything. They lost their, um, their homes, their cars, their clothes, their well, cell phones back then were, were Palm Pilots and Palm Trios and all that kind of stuff. But they lost those too. They lost everything. They lost their computers. They lost everything. And I'm looking at them going, uh, you lost everything, but you're staying fully engaged. You're caring about other people. You're doing nice things for other people. Um, 
And I, I don't know that I would do that. How do you do that? So that was the beginning of the conversation for me, trying to understand um, how do you think in a way that you thrive even after you've lost everything? Because I want to be like you when I grow up. And I don't know that I would be. So that was the beginning of the, the quest to understand how these people think. That's exciting. That that is possible. And it was a natural thing. They probably didn't have to think about it. They just became that person. They fell into that mindset in that situation. Yeah. And it turns out the research shows that about 20 to 30% of people do that. But, you know, CNN doesn't show you. They would rather show you the, the victims. And it's right. interesting. I think our culture shifted about, probably about 20 years ago. We shifted from being a hero-centric society to a victim-centric society. And, and the ramifications of that are tremendous. So back in the day when I was a kid, everybody wanted to be, in my neighborhood, we all wanted to be astronauts. So we'd say, oh, yeah, we watched them. I mean, I watched them land on the moon. It was so cool. Um, and, and we all said, when we grow up, we want to be like that. And now our society says, well, at least I'm not that bad. Like, if you don't want to clean your garage, you just watch hoarders. And you go, well, my garage isn't that bad. I think I'll stay here and watch some football. I'm okay. <laughs> Reality <laughs> TV, if, I can't watch it. <laughs> oh, it's painful. But it makes us comfortable. Yeah. As opposed to looking at, you know, these people that I encountered in Katrina um, that said, well, it's not about me. I don't care who gets credit. I can actually help. It was really cool. One of the most profound things that I've discovered in a disaster uh, was when I went to the Philippines. And I've got some videos on, my, on the website, uh, dandiamondmd.com, that show what, the, what it was like during the disaster. So I was uh, in a helicopter and filming some of the disaster. and container ships like big huge container ships were tossed up on the shore and they squeegeed the homes right off to their foundations the the damage was unbelievable and that was about five and a half six years ago now but the mayor's office just released a video about six months ago and the video is called Takloban, the happiest people in the world and they have rebuilt Takloban. And it's better than it ever was before. It's jaw dropping. How in the world did they do that? Where they went from complete and utter destruction to rebuilding it and making it better than it was. And I think what happened was in the Philippines, it's, they have a pretty different um, perspective on the world. In fact, I would say that of all the cultures I've worked with, the Filipino culture is the most resilient. And the reason is because they are all about we instead of all about me. When the storm hits, as soon as the wind stops blowing, they go to their neighbor's house and say, are you okay? Did anybody in your family get hurt? We've got some rice on. We're cooking right now. If you want to come over in about 15 minutes, we'll sit down and figure out whose house we're going to rebuild first because we're in this together. And it was like unbelievable. How many disasters have you seen on the TV? And I've seen in person where people are wandering around saying, who's going to help me? Who's going to help me? In the Philippines, it's um, it's all about we, and the results were amazing. So if you if you go to my either go to my website or or search for Takloban T A C L O B A N Takloban, the happiest people in the world, 
um, watch that video and you'll just be blown away. Oh my gosh. It's wow. I'll have to share that in the show notes. And I think yeah, that story great. needs to be in your new book, Friends. Yeah, it might make it in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the mayor um, did some amazing work in, in Todd Globine after the storm hit. Uh, it was, it's just a fantastic story. He had two homes. His wife and children were in one home. He was in another home. And a wave came in and blew all the windows out of his house. He climbed up in the rafters with his security team and finally uh, was able to get down, got back to his other house, but he was just begging God to save his family. And when you, and I've got pictures of this that are stunning. The, when you go see his house, there was five palm trees that fell down on top of his house and held the roof on his house. This is like five fingers that just went and, oh and saved his kids. It's so cool. That is really cool. Well, I want to wrap up this first segment, just getting to know you by ending with the question about stress relief, because we've talked about all these stressors and you've touched on mindfulness a little bit. Would you say that that has been the number one thing to help you prevent and relieve stress in all of these situations? Yeah, my mindfulness practice has become a, a really important part. Uh, listening to music is actually really helpful. Making sure that I get at least seven hours of sleep if, and possibly eight. And, you know, most of my career, I got five or six. Um, but seven or eight is better. And there's good data to back that up. Uh, and then exercising. I exercise every single day and I don't miss. So, I mean, I had 823 days in a row before I had my heart surgery. And they, they made me take some time off after that. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and when you mention mindfulness practice for our listeners, could you explain what that means to you? Yeah, I'm a simple guy. I just use an app. I use the Calm app on my phone uh, and, and practice with that. There's some interesting stuff out now uh, from an organization called HeartMath. And um, I've been looking at that and practicing some of that they have what they have found is that that um when you're in a high stress situation the beat to beat variability between your heartbeats is all over the board now if you take your pulse and you you know this from being a nurse when you take your pulse you're averaging it over 30 seconds or 15 seconds and then multiplying it and you're coming up with beats per minute but if you have the right equipment you can measure the time between each beat and they found that when you're in a high stress situation, that that beat to beat variability is all over the place. And you can do a specific type of meditation that includes gratitude uh, and is more focused on the heart. And you can get into these like sine wave variations in the beat to beat variability of the heart. And they call it coherence. And it's really fascinating. So, you know, it, and it takes work. It's, it's not easy, uh, but with practice, you can learn to get into these patterns of coherence. Uh, and I think that's very helpful. So the, um, this idea of is too woo woo. I'm like, nah, you know, I, mindfulness is just being fully present and mm -hmm. not allowing my brain to go off on a tangent. <laughs> and right. so I want to be able to stay where I am and focus. And then using the heart math stuff is, 
being fully present and bringing gratitude into that. So whether you're using, and they have a monitor that clips on your ear that measures the B2B variability. Um, I, I think that's fascinating. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something I've been playing with lately. But if, I think a great place to start is just downloading the Calm app. That's fantastic. And I'm going to have to check out that HeartMath monitor. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's let me know how you do. Okay, <laughs> I will. There's I also will. another program that I use is called Insight Timer. Okay, I've heard of that one. So I will include all of those links to these devices in the show notes at the end of the show. And now I want to switch gears into talking about what you do now, the kind of work that you're doing and how you're taking everything you've learned from these natural disasters to help people thrive under pressure. And you mentioned you have a book, Beyond Resilient. One of the chapters is actually available for free on your website right now. And I took a look at it and I found a lot of interesting research in there. You talked a little bit about people losing their jobs or being afraid of losing their jobs, people getting laid off of work and how people respond to those types of everyday situations. So you don't have to be in an earthquake to be stressed out or to be under pressure. And so could you tell me about a time when you and your employees were under a lot of pressure and some of these fears and negative mindsets came up? (laughs) I don't know, like every day. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's like, I don't know, tell me about a time when you were felt like you were stressed out working at Harborview. Right. Every day. Um, yeah. So I think that's just a, it's, it's like the baseline when you're working in, you know, lately I've been working in urgent care, uh, just a couple of shifts a month when I'm not speaking. Uh, and it's always stressful because you have a waiting room full of people and you have people that are um, sick and need to be seen and they're not feeling good that they have to wait. So that's always a high pressure situation. And I, I have this, um, one medical assistant that I used to work with that was, and he's now over at Washington state university going to school. Um, but he used to show up in the morning and he would say, Hey, Dr. D, what can I do to make your life great today? And it always made me kind of go, yeah, it's going to be a good day. Um, I just love working with him because his, his focus was how can I help you be successful? And if we all show up with that attitude, it makes the day go so much easier. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes we get derailed and we got to kind of come back and say, all right, what happened? How you doing? You all right? What can I do to help you be successful? That's a great way to start the day. I know the other day someone said to me, I hope you have a really special day today. And it was a great day because they planted that seed that something special was going to happen, even though it was a Monday. Yeah. Well, I refuse to give up Mondays. It's one seventh of my life. I agree. It's just another day. day. It's like, yeah, bring it on. Come on, let's go. You know, it's interesting that you say that because being in the Pacific Northwest, it rains all the time and people say it's so depressing. And I actually ask Siri in the mornings what the weather's like because I walk my dog in Central Park. And the other day she said, the weather's not very good today. 
it's overcast and rainy. And I thought of Seattle, but then I thought, since when does Siri have an opinion about how bad the weather is going to be? That's not a great way for me to start my day. Yeah. I, I think you should have a conversation with Siri about that. I did. I said, since when do you have an opinion? And then she went yeah. off on some tangent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it, it comes back to what's my internal conversation? What's my, what are my thoughts? And when I become aware of the fact, if I wake up and go, oh, another rainy day in paradise, it's not going to be as good as if I look out and go, wow, it's beautiful. It doesn't, the rain doesn't bother me. I don't care. I have a, I have a hat. I have a coat. You can tell the real people from Seattle, you know, we don't, we don't <laughs> carry umbrellas. All the visitors and all the people that have moved here carry umbrellas. They think that's the cool thing. It's not the cool thing. The cool thing is you put a hat on and a coat on and you go out and play in the rain. It doesn't make any difference. Umbrella just gets in the way. That's true. And it's like a mist. It's like walking through a mister. So the umbrella doesn't really do anything. But right. I remember when I lived there, I just looked around and it was so green and it would not be that green and lush if it didn't rain all the time. So let's go back to talking about work um, and the work that you're doing now to help people, because as you said, every day in healthcare and probably in other workplaces, people go to work dreading it. I know there's, you dread it on Sundays for get in preparation for Monday. We talked about that. There's just all of these things, being nervous about a meeting, being nervous about messing up, feeling like you have to be perfect. And it's really affecting job satisfaction for people. And leaders are kind of charged with pulling people out of it, but they're not really taught how to do that. How to make their teams more productive. The work that I'm doing now is I'm doing a lot of keynote presentations and I'm doing full day workshops or two day workshops uh, and where we really get people to roll up their sleeves and dive into this. And then I'm also doing one on one coaching. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people that are really struggling trying to figure this out. But, you know, how do I how do I navigate through this and come out healthy out the other end? Uh, and it doesn't happen by accident. You have to be pretty intentional about um, making the changes. Uh, and applying some of the the new science behind this leadership and um, how do you thrive under pressure? So that's my big passion is I, I love walking down the road with people and helping them with that. And what does that process look like when people are working with you? So, I mean, it depends. So I've got a, keynote presentations that I'll go in and do for big organizations I've done work with Boeing and Costco and Hilton Hotels and Expedia and a lot of different healthcare systems in the United States. Um, and then the workshops that I'm doing now is really fun. What I really love doing is a keynote on one night and then the next day do a full day workshop. So I can get all the, the core concepts down about mindset and really take a, a deep dive into that. But then the next day in that workshop, I get out of the way and let them wrestle with it. And it's all about choreographing conversations and bringing out the best of what has been and the best of what is and looking at what the best of the future can be. It is such an, a fun process and a game-changing process for organizations. Um, and I absolutely love doing that. And then coaching I do uh, virtually and that it, it really is customized. It can be, um, you know, meeting on a weekly basis or a monthly basis. And there's some, um, 
work that we do at the beginning, looking at strengths. And um, I really enjoy us. There's a survey called the PERMA survey. It's P-E-R-M-A-H. And this is based on some of the positive psychology by Marty Seligman. And then my friend, Michelle McQuaid, added the H at the end. And it stands for positive emotions, engagement, um, relationships, meaning in work, sense of accomplishment, and then the H that she had on the end is health. And so those are the areas that we start looking at, you know, how do I show up and have like meaningful relationships at work? How do I take care of myself? How do I show up and be engaged in my work when I don't like my work? So we dig into, uh, into that. And I've found that, and this makes so much sense, but it's amazing how many people don't get this. If we focus on burnout, for example, and say, we have to do something about burnout. It doesn't go very well because we go in the direction that we look. But if we say, um, how can we thrive? How can we flourish? How can my whole team flourish? That's a whole different conversation. And especially as a physician, you know, I'm a trained problem solver. That's what I do for a living. But if I focus on burnout and I say, well, okay, well, we got to do something about this burnout problem we got going on in your organization. And so the first thing that we do is a burnout inventory. Well, when the results come back that say that 52% of the people in the organization are burned out, then everybody slaps their forehead and says, oh my gosh, I thought it was just me. It's not me. It's the, the whole system. It's toxic. This is a terrible thing. This is awful. Um, and you know, what are we going to, what are we going to do? Maybe I need to leave the organization and go someplace else. Maybe I need to get out of medicine altogether. All because I asked the wrong question. If I ask the question, what am I going to do about burnout? I'm going to end up more burned out. My people are going to end up more burned out. If I ask the question, how can I thrive? How can I build a culture that is a flourishing culture where people feel loved and accepted and encouraged? That's the direction you're going to go. So the questions that we ask are crucial and the direction we face is crucial. I agree with you 100%. As someone who left healthcare because of burnout, I can totally relate to both sides of those um, stories and perspectives. And so you sounded really excited when you talked about the workshops. So I would love to hear after the workshops, what do people come up to you? and tell you they got out of them. I'm sure lots of people come up to you afterwards. Yeah, I had a, um, a chief medical officer at one of the workshops recently uh, come up and he had his three-piece suit on uh, and he looked very official and he was about six inches taller than me. Uh, and he came up with the first break and he, and he looked at me and uh, it was, you could tell the words were hard to get out. And then the tear ran down his cheek. And he said, you changed my life today. And he gave me this big hug, you know, like a bear, a guy, guy, like he could have lifted me off the ground. (laughs) And I said, you know, you don't have to wear your suit tomorrow if you don't want to. He said, really? Yeah, you don't. You can just show up. We like you like you are. Really? Yeah. So he showed up the next day in in shorts and a camouflage shirt. It was awesome. (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, I think if we're going to do this work, This is not head stuff. This is heart stuff. We need to connect with people on a, um, from a heart to heart. And yeah, there's intellectual stuff. We could, I could geek out on you if you want. We could talk about all kinds of weird neural 
neuroanatomy and neurophysiology and all that stuff. But really at a heart level, uh, people want to know, am I okay? Am I safe? Um, can I tell you what I'm really thinking? Because I'm kind of a little bit scared right now. Um, I, I think those are, that's the kind of environment that we, that I try really hard to create uh, in a workshop is how do we get the psychological safety? You know, you had mentioned this um, uh, in something you just, just said, reminded me of the idea of uh, the imposter syndrome. You know, that the, this idea of, I, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do right now. And hopefully everybody else doesn't see that I don't know. And that happens in medicine a lot. And we don't talk about it. In fact, I was speaking at the National Academy of Family Medicine um, conference, their, their big, their first annual uh, wellness conference that they did for the American Academy of Family Physicians. And I was sitting in the back because I was getting ready to go up and do the closing keynote. And one of my friends was doing a keynote uh, before me. And she mentioned something about the imposter syndrome. And I'm nodding in the back going, yeah, no kidding, no kidding. Uh, and the woman next to me says, do you struggle with that? And, and I said, yeah, so do most of the people in the room. She goes, really? I thought I was the only one. I said, no. She didn't know I was going, that I was one of the speakers. So when I walked up to the stage and was doing my talk, I said, hey, I was just wondering, um, how many of you have ever struggled with the imposter syndrome? And almost every hand in the room went up. I said, just wanted to do a quick poll for a friend of mine because <laughs> she needed to see all of your hands. She thought she was the only one. That's the danger of not being connected and not communicating yes. with each other and being vulnerable and connecting at that heart level is we isolate and we think we're the only one. And that creates yeah. that loneliness you were talking about. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, how do we, my, the thing I, that just brings me tremendous joy is when we can design a workshop where people feel like they connected with people they work with for the first time. And I'm not into creating an emotional experience just so people feel an emotional experience. I'm about connecting people to each other in, in a real way so that they can actually do great work in the high pressure world that we face. That's beautiful. And I really appreciate all of your stories. I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but we're almost out of time. So I just have a few questions left that I want you to answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Let's have a little fun. <laughs> That's dangerous, by the way, because I'm a street mime. So <laughs> That's for I another episode. That's how I made my way through medical school was as a street mime in Seattle. It was a, it was a great gig. I was making 25 bucks an hour and that was 38 years ago. <laughs> That's amazing. I'll have to have you back on the show to talk about what that was like. Yeah, have you ever interviewed a mime? <laughs> well, you're a retired mime, so we can maybe we can talk about it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. What does it mean to feel successful to you? It's all about the impact that I have on other people. Buford wrote a book called Halftime, and he said that most of us in the first half of our lives try for success. The second half of our lives, we try for significance. And I would define significance as li living my life in a way that, that blesses other people. And what is something you've accomplished that you are most proud of? 
Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, I, my book was a big deal. Uh, that was a fun thing. Um, being a dad is a great thing and a husband. And I don't know that I can narrow it down to one thing. Cause I have, like you started, we started off saying I have a big plate. There's lots of things that I'm excited about. That's awesome. And what are you most looking forward to this year? Getting my new book done. Yes, I can't wait to see it. What is going to keep you up at night after this interview? Oh my gosh, that, you stole one of my questions. <laughs> <laughs> what keeps you up at night? Um, what keeps me up at night is I want to get back in shape again. Uh, and then, you know, after you've had open heart surgery, it kind of has a, an impact on everything. And I'm just trying to get my my podcast back up again and my blog back cruising again and, um, you know, find more opportunities to go speak. So those are the things that uh, is, is, you know, where I'm really putting my efforts in right now because I had to step back a bit after my surgery. Right. And the last question, what's the best way for our listeners to get in contact with you? Um, you can, my website is dandiamondmd.com. That's the best place. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for being on the show. You are my first guest. So I hope this interview wasn't too painful. <laughs> no, it was fun. It was good. Tara. I'm excited about what you're doing. Awesome. And we hope to have you back on the show again soon. That sounds like a good deal. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening in. I super appreciate you. Be sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. And make sure to check out Dr. Dan Diamond. He has some amazing things going on at dandiamondmd.com and also a book, Beyond Resilient, trench-tested tools to thrive under pressure available on amazon and kindle i'm ordering my copy right now thank you again to dr dan diamond for being on the show and for being my very first guest and again thank you to everyone listening in you're amazing and i'm so proud of you for being able to manage all the things on your plate from me and the podcast team make today the best day Bye.